it's a hard question to answer in that if you really think about it, how do you answer that question? It's an easy question to answer in that a lot of us can come up with some pretty pat answers off the top of our head. Well, I, you know, this is what I do. This is where I live. Um, this is who I'm related to. Um, oftentimes are those kinds of answers that we come up with. And, and, and when it comes to Gladiator, when it comes to Maximus, he knew who he was. He had had everything else stripped away. He had had everything taken away from him. And so when that question came to him from Caesar, somebody who he knew, you see that pause, do I want to say it? Do I want to say it? Yeah, I know exactly who I am. And he turns around and says, here's who I am. I am, and he goes through his little list of of who he is and the things that are important to him and the things that he knows make him who he is. As we go through today, I want to talk through uh, uh, the Gospel of John chapter 3. And uh, we're, we're continuing on in this series, a series we started about being fully loved. Graham has talked through a few of these already. And on Christmas, time, Christmas night, he, uh, on Christmas Eve, excuse me, he talked about the why of Christmas and the what of Christmas and went through that Christmas story. And then last week as Graham came through, he came through and talked about the fact that simply you can't fully love yourself. And we're going to get back to that today. We're going to get back to the idea that you can't fully love yourself. And, and, and so as we go in today, I want to talk about a, a passage that Graham talked about on Christmas Eve. Uh, that passage is John 3.16. But before we get into that, I want to go back and give a little background. Today we're going to take a look at Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a guy who comes and, and asks Jesus a question. And his question is very, very simple but also very complicated. But before we look at that, let's look a little bit at the book of John. I think I've been teaching too much because I like to go back into the history and, and uh, like to go back to uh, uh, give you the information, but it can be a very good thing to understand before we look at this passage. The book of John was written well after the other Gospels. You have the other Gospels, and that is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they are written many years earlier. And as you look at uh, the book of John, John writes it probably somewhere between 70 and 80 A.D., um, the temple in Jerusalem has been destroyed. The Romans finally got sick of the rebellions and things that went on in, in, in Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple in much of Jerusalem. Um, John is writing at a time in which the, the, the early church is struggling. You've got guys, probably a lot along the lines of the character you see with Caesar there, but Nero, who is literally burning Christians at the stake as, as streetlights down the Appian Way. You've got a guy who uh, uh, burned down most of, of Rome and blamed it on the Christians and then turned around and, and killed many, many Christians after that. The Christians were, were, were getting into a lot of persecution. They were also to the point at which they were a generation away from Jesus. The people who might have been at the Sermon on the Mount, the people who might have been uh, uh, in Jerusalem when Jesus was there, somebody who might have been at the temple when he went through, somebody who knew somebody who was there, that generation was dying off. John was the last of the disciples. He was, he was uh, somebody who had a personal connection with Christ. He was the disciple whom Jesus loved. And John, as he's going on in age, says, you know what, there are some things that I need to fill in. Matthew, Mark, Luke, they did a great job. Uh, Matthew was speaking mostly to the, the Jews, and so there's a Jewish bent to that gospel. But it's, it's a good history of what happened with Jesus. And Luke to the Gentiles, he was a Gentile doctor, and he's going to talk to the Greeks and a little more intellectual in some of the ways he goes about things. And John Mark, John Mark is an amazing guy. He, he probably was 
a, a young teenager, maybe, maybe 9 or 10, maybe a little bit older than that. And, and he was a guy who hung out with Jesus and the disciples. He was in the house. He was a son of Martha and, and just was able to take it all in. And so John knows all these gospels are out there, and he says there's some important things that I need to cover. And so that's the background for, for John and where John is written. And as we get into John 3, there's a couple things to look at. First of all, John is very concerned with theology, with, with right belief. There were heresies coming up in the early church. When you talk about the early church, uh, the, the heresies that came up were things like uh, Jesus is just a very important man that God chose to do some incredible things. Um, Jesus is a God, but he's a little bit less than God the Father. And those kinds of beliefs and things, or you can know your way to God. Gnosticism was another one that slept, that crept into the early church. And so John's seeing all these, and he writes this gospel, and he's very much concerned about right belief, about truth. Um, you'll see that in, in the gospel of John, if you read it, he uses miracles very, very little. He actually refers to very few miracles. Um, John writes 90% unique material. And not that he made it up, but just that he chose, knowing that he had the history over here, he chose to say, I need to focus on some things. I need to focus on what Jesus said to the disciples in the upper room. And he spends five, six chapters on that. And so John has a point at what he's doing. And if you look at the gospel, he starts out, and the most important thing is Jesus is God in the prologue. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is, was, and always will be God. And then he moves on to the wedding at Cana. And at the wedding at Cana, it's a very interesting thing. Let's see if this works. No? Not yet? Okay. Uh, just going to see if it was. I'd like to use my hands, and it's tough. I'm single-handed now. Um, at the wedding at Cana, it's interesting because you have these ceremonial jugs of water. And those are the jugs of water that Jesus tur- turned into wine. It wasn't just the sparklets bottle over here. It was the Jewish ceremonial jugs that you'd use to cleanse, that you'd use to wash your hands, you'd use for certain rituals. That's what he turned into wine. And then you get on to this next story in, in John 3, and, and, and just before John 3, excuse me, you've got, you've got the clearing of the temple. What an amazing thing that was. I don't know if you, you get this. The temple is acres, acres upon acres of space. And, and Jesus walks in, one man, it's interesting, it says he sat there and he made a whip of cords. I wonder what people are thinking as Jesus, who some people are already hearing at these rumors about, he says he's the Messiah, is sitting in the corner of the temple making a whip of cords. And he drives everybody out. He drives the money changers out. What you have to understand is that the temple at this time had, had gotten to the point at which um, it was a very corrupt place. The chief priest was, was, most, was uh, nominated and put in place by, by the Romans. It wasn't necessarily uh, somebody who should be there. He was a Jewish leader. He was probably a fairly religious man, but he was a very powerful and politically connected man. And as Jesus clears this, you also have to understand that the northwest corner of the temple, that's where the garrison of Romans were. And so anything that was going to cause an issue, the Romans would have stepped right in. They don't want to revolt. The governor in this area doesn't want to revolt. He's already mad that he has to govern this podunk area of the Roman Empire. And Jesus goes in and clears the temple. He clears people that were making a lot of money out of the temple. What they had done at that point is they had gotten to from the point of using, you had currency that you used in Israel, and then there was actually a temple currency. And there was a high, high uh, exchange rate on that, and they were making a ton of money. So you have all of these things that come into play, and then that brings us to John 3. And in John 3, you get Nicodemus. And, and let's, look at, let's look at the passage. I'm going to have you put it up on screen since I don't have a, a hand to hold on to things. Nicodemus approaches Jesus and says, there, now, there was a, uh, uh, now there was a man 
of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miracles and signs you are doing if God were not with him. Okay, you get Nicodemus, who is a Pharisee. He's a teacher. And it actually says in there that he is a ruler of the Jews, part of the ruling council. Um, there's, there's some thought, and it's, we're not sure, but th- that he was maybe one of the three richest and most powerful people in Jerusalem. He had everything he wanted. He had everything he needed when it comes to worldly terms. He was a Jewish leader, even. He was a religious leader. But he comes to Jesus at night. Why does he come at night? He doesn't want anybody else seeing him. This guy, I, I think he might be the Messiah. But I think he also comes kind of thinking he knows the answer to his question already. And we'll talk about why, why I think that in just a minute. But here's the deal. He comes before him, and what does he do? He comes before him and he says, Rabbi, I, I want to learn from you. The term rabbi is a term that means teacher. And in this case, it's actually used with a definite article, which means the rabbi. Not a rabbi, it means the rabbi. And remember, this is who Nicodemus is. He's a rabbi. He's somebody that everybody looks up to. He is somebody who teaches in the synagogues and everybody looks up to. And he comes before Jesus and says, Rabbi, I want to learn from you. And, and as he comes before Jesus, he says, he says this, this whole concept comes up of, of, I need to learn something. I think I've got it. But I think I need to learn something. The Pharisees, by the way, were a group of people who actually their name meant simply separated ones. Imagine if Graham came in. The announcement was, here's the separated one. He will preach to you today. Come into the separated one's office. He will talk to you now. Okay? Sometimes maybe you feel that in churches sometimes. But their, their, their name literally means separated ones. They were a group of people that in the, the silent era, the era after the last prophet, 400 B.C., end of the Old Testament, you have the last prophet, God wasn't speaking to the people of Israel anymore. There's this silent period until you get to the New Testament. And in that void, the Pharisees came up. The Pharisees, for lack of a better way to say it, were a self-appointed guardians of the law. And they took the law, the Ten Commandments, and actually larger than that, the Torah or the, the Pentateuch, the first five books, and then they expanded on it. And they would do silly things. You got to understand, they would do things like a, a Pharisee would say, you know, um, I, need to, I need to walk on a Sabbath, so I, I, I need to get over there. But the laws that we have put in place say you can only walk so many steps on a Sabbath or else it's work. And so they would put laws, things in place where there were exceptions to that. And so they would have a servant the day before go out and put a hairbrush there. Um, well, not if you're Tomo, but... Um, oh, sorry. I, I'm working on it, so I couldn't resist. Um, and, and, but, and so you'd walk out, and he would brush his hair or brush his teeth, or I don't know what they'd do exactly. But they would get there, and they would establish their household there, essentially. And then they'd go, and they'd walk the rest of the way. It got to be so silly, some of the things they were putting in place. And so this is part of who, who, who Nicodemus is about. The, these Pharisees, these laws that they put in place, I think there were actually 142 laws that dealt with how far you could walk on the Sabbath. It's ridiculous. And so they had books upon books upon books of what you could and couldn't do based on the law, based on the Old Testament law. So that's who Nicodemus is. And as we come to Nicodemus, he comes to Jesus and asks him a question. And, and the question is simply this. It starts in verse 3. We're going to go back up here again. 
In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth that no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter the second time into the mother's womb and be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of the water and spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh and spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You can hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So what is it with everyone born of the spirit? Okay, Nicodemus comes, he asks his question. I think he knows, what, he, he knows the answer he thinks he's going to get. He knows, oh, okay, you know, you're doing good, Nicodemus. You should just keep it up, and, and I understand you, you're not quite like all those other Pharisees, and you're doing well, you're here asking me a question. This is a good thing. Okay, but Jesus comes back, and we'll get to his answer in just a minute. He talks to him a little bit about this idea of being born again. What does it mean to be born again? Nicodemus goes, I don't get it. I, I, I'm sorry, I know I'm a teacher. I know I, I, I don't get it. Well, you need to be born of water and spirit. Now, some people look at that that, uh, comment about water and think it's just a physical birth. Probably not. At this time, they didn't didn't equate uh, water and that idea of physical birth. Probably what Jesus was referring to, because it would have been in in Nicodemus' thinking as he came through, is the idea of the baptism and John the Baptist baptism and Jesus' baptism, and that you must be repentant. That idea that I'm going to change my life. I'm going to be repentant. And then I'm going to live by the Spirit. And it's within the context of this, you've know, you got to picture Nicodemus. He's, he's, he's kind of set off a little bit. He's not sure where they're going here. Um, and Jesus wants to get to this idea that, that you're fully loved, Nicodemus, no matter what. No matter what you know, no matter what you do, you're fully loved. And here he comes back. How can this be? Jesus, how can this be? And this is the heart-wrenching, I think, for Nicodemus answer that Jesus gives. Notice he doesn't, he doesn't answer the question. He comes back and asks him another question. And this goes to the very soul of who Nicodemus is. You're a teacher of Israel, and you do not understand these things? I can imagine Nicodemus just sitting there and shoulders kind of sloughing down and his head coming down a little bit. And, oh, boy, what, 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 what did I get myself into here? I was just calling up, and I wanted to, wanted to check some things and make sure that, that I was right in my belief, and, and, and now I've gotten myself into a situation that I don't know how to answer it. Let's move on to uh, verses 11 through 15 here. I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people, the Pharisees is probably what Jesus is referring to, do not accept our testimony, Jesus and the disciples and the other believers. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? Now for John... A very important part of the book of John, you will notice if you read through John, miracles, the term miracles is not used very often. In fact, there's only eight or nine miracles recorded in the book of John. Uh, He actually uses the term signs. By the time we get to this point, I think John is really trying to say, you know what? I don't want you to believe in the dog and pony show. I don't want you to believe in the tricks. And not that miracles are, are tricks, but people were believing in these miraculous things and, and it was the wow factor they were believing in. And John's concern was that they believe in the spiritual truth that's behind it. And there's Jesus' question. If you notice, if you read through the Gospels, Jesus' interaction with people, he always will deal with the physical issue that's going on. He will talk to people about it. He will heal people. He'll do all of those things, but he'll always bring it back to the spiritual issue. He heals the, 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 the paralytic man at the pool who's been there for 38 years. 
And he finds him later to say, now let's deal with the real issue. Do you believe in me as your savior? And over and over and over again, Jesus will always go back and deal with the spiritual issues. He continues on here. No one has ever gone into heaven except for the one who came from heaven, the son of man, reference to Jesus. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the son of man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Here's the neat thing. Jesus, whenever he's talking to people, especially when he's talking to the Pharisees, he always brings them back to scripture. He brings them back to the Old Testament scripture. This passage is actually from Numbers 21 that he's referring to here. And, and as he goes and talks to these guys, he doesn't just give them good information. He says, look, it's in scripture. You should know better. In this case, he's talking about Numbers 21 when Moses has to hold up a, a, a staff with a, a, a bronze serpent on it because the people of Israel have been rebelling against God and God finally just says, I'm sick of it. And he sends snakes into the camp. And as he sends snakes into the camp, people are being bitten by the snakes and die. And it's interesting that Jesus brings this in and John brings it in as well because what God's command to Moses was, I want you to make a staff with a serpent on it. I want you to hold it up. And here's what the people have to do to live. They simply have to look up. It's not about what you do. It's not about what you know. There were probably lots of people in that camp that knew a lot and that did a lot for God. But that wasn't the concern. I want you to look up. The words that are used here are actually the same words that John uses later on to talk about Christ on the cross and that he must be lifted up on the cross. And, and it wasn't about anything they could do. And you can imagine Nicodemus sitting there going, oh boy, I think I get this. Oh boy, I, I think I get this. It wasn't about anything you could do, Nicodemus. You know it all. People come to you and say, come on and speak to us. People respect you, but Nicodemus, that's not what it's about. It's about looking up at your Lord and Savior. It's about looking up at God. Now, it, when, you, when you talk about this passage, that leads us to the one that most of us know, and that is John 3.16. And when you look at John 3.16, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. Graham talked about it on, on Christmas Eve. Uh, most of us know the verse or could, could find where it is or remember the guy with the, if you're old enough, the, the rainbow wig and John 3.16 behind the goalpost, those kinds of things. We all know the basics of it. And I, I, I think simply this, when you look at John 3.16, he finally looks at Nicodemus and through this whole story and as he goes into John 3.16, he says, Nicodemus, believing in me, the Messiah, Jesus, is not an intellectual agreement that you decide that you understand who I am. It's about turning your life over to me. It's about looking up. That's the context of John 3.16. And then he goes on for the, next few passage, for the next few verses, and he talks to Nicodemus. I'm not going to read them, but uh, he talks to Nicodemus about the idea of condemnation and judgment. He actually, John, in the next uh, two chapters, will talk about the fact that judgment belongs to Christ alone. I wonder today... And, and as a pastor for a lot of years in, in churches and working in a Christian school and, and, and those kinds of things, I wonder today how much, as Christians, we aren't like the Pharisees about condemnation and judgment sometimes, about telling people what we don't believe in rather than what we do believe in, about putting our issues and our, our, our uh, ways of life before Christ. Not that we shouldn't have feelings on issues, not that we shouldn't stand strong on issues, not that we shouldn't be about some politics and social issues and things like that, but when we put those before Christ, there's something wrong. 
Nicodemus had put his, his theology, his, his knowledge, everything he was before God the Father and the Messiah as he came before him. So as we go into this, I can imagine, you know, Nicodemus at the end of this conversation, they're sitting there and I, you know, you got Nicodemus' head up a little bit in this picture. I can imagine him just spent. He's reassessing life. This is all of who he's been. If I really want to believe in this, I got to change a whole bunch about who I am. And it tells us Nicodemus just walked away. It wasn't this incredible life-changing experience that happened that night. He thought about it. The neat thing about Nicodemus is we do see later in uh, chapter 7, 50, 51, 52, when, when, they, when they decide to arrest Jesus, Nicodemus is the one who steps up and says, wait a minute, he's telling the truth. And do, do we just go decide to arrest people because we, we want to? And Nicodemus is the one that before all of the Jewish leaders in the temple says this is wrong. He's also the guy that uh, in chapter 19 of John looks back and with Joseph of Arimathea, who is more than just a guy from the Indiana Jones movies, he was a real guy. Um, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus are the two that asked for Jesus' body so that they can put him in the grave. And it's in Joseph of Arimathea's Acrosalia, the grave, this, this stone grave this, this, that they put him in. And so Nicodemus does get it. And he is willing to say, I'm willing to give up everything for that. Now, as we look at Nicodemus and we look at ourselves, I want you to understand something. This is where we get to our series, and this is where we get back, and I'll pull us back to what Graham was speaking about last week. You need to understand that you're fully loved. No matter who you are, you could have been sitting in in, uh, church for all your life. You could be walking in off the street high on cocaine, and Christ fully loves you because we are all fallen. And sometimes we forget that. We are all fallen. Some of us don't know that we need a relationship with God. Some of us let our religion get in the way of our relationship with God at times. Um, When we talk about the the things that we often get off on, and I'm going to finish with these three, a lot of times our view of God can be skewed. When we talk about our view of God being skewed, I've used the example a year or two ago, I think when I was preaching, um, of Barnes and Noble and Borders. You can go into Barnes and Noble and Borders, and 20 years ago, there was like a bookshelf, maybe a shelf on, on spirituality. You go in today, there's, there's rows of books on spirituality. Here's the problem, though. Most of those books, in some way, shape, or form, start with you. And you get to grab this, and you get to grab that, and you get to grab this, and you develop your view of God, and ultimately, you develop your God based around you. Now, I don't know about you, but I know me. there's no way I'd want a God that's developed around me. It's scary. Think about all your faults. I can't go through an hour without sinning. I can't go through an hour without thinking about myself more than what I should be thinking about. And oftentimes, our views of God can, can get so skewed. And even within Christianity... I, I was challenged at one point to say, you know what, I need to be reading my Bible more. I was reading lots of books on Christianity. But I wasn't reading a lot of Scripture at the time. And, and, and I sat and listened to somebody, somebody who challenged me with that, and I said, you know what? My faith needs to be built around what I know is true. And that comes from Scripture. A lot of times our view of God gets, gets tweaked, and a lot of times, again, that's because it's around ourselves. Our worldview can also get tweaked, our view of the world around us. Um, I'll tell you right now, I have spent time as a pastor. I've spent time uh, traveling a lot. All of those things have added to my worldview. Um, and understanding the world around me and how it all get put, put, get, gets put into place. 
the thing that's probably impacted me the most, I spent three years working with guys who work in the inner city, guys and gals who work in the inner city of the United States. There are 40 million urban poor in the United States. And I spent time working with them and helping them connect with churches, things like that. But understanding and getting involved with the urban poor and understanding who they are and why they think differently and why they might vote Democratic as opposed to Republican. By the way, God's not Republican. Just don't send Graham emails, okay? Um, So, uh, you know, you don't have to vote Republican to be a Christian. I'm not saying you do, okay? Uh, But as we look at this, a lot of times our worldviews are based on what we feel is important rather than what God tells us is important. And we need to understand that our view of the world needs to be seen through God's eyes, not ours. And ultimately, it gets to the last one I want to talk to you about, is our view of ourselves gets skewed. We think too highly of ourselves. Sometimes we think too low, low of ourselves. Here's the reality. Our anchor point is God. Our foundation is God. We are fully loved. No matter who you are, no matter where you're at, you are fully loved by God. And guess what the flip side is? We're all fallen. We're all going to mess up. Even the person that you hide and, uh, hold in such high esteem, they're not God. All of us are going to mess up. There's not levels of sin. It's what the Pharisees got themselves into, and sometimes we do, to do, do that today. The reality is, our anchor point is that God loves us and wants to have a relationship with us. It is amazing to me to think that the God of the universe, the one that makes the world spin just how it's supposed to spin, that keeps us just far enough away from the sun, but not too far away from the sun, the one that makes my body work the way it's supposed to, for the most part, every day, all the thousands of things that have to happen for me just to be standing here and breathing, that God that made the universe, that made me, wants to have a relationship with me and with you and with you and with you. That is amazing. You are fully loved, no matter who you are. As we close today, I just want to bring us back to a simple song you might have learned in Sunday school. Now, if Graham were up here, he would break into song with it. You don't want that from me, so I'm not going to do that, so I will say it. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. It's that simple. Christianity, belief in God, is that simple. Jesus loves me, this I know. Now, is there a lot to learn and understand and grow with, both through looking at Scripture and interacting with other people and going through life? Yes, it's complicated, but it's also that simple. You are fully loved. Why don't you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for the fact that we are fully loved. We thank you that it is just that simple. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. I pray that like Nicodemus, we would understand and get to the point of understanding that we are fully loved no matter who we are, whether it's because we think that God can't love us, or in some of our cases, whether it's because we've gotten to the point of of maybe thinking we know too much that there can't be a God, or anywhere in between. Help us understand those simple, simple words. Jesus loves me, this I know. In your name, amen.